Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving, and um, I've been thinking about what I want to say for this introduction. And you know, I really want to just draw attention to the fact that at this time, all the networks that we belong to that are trying to, um, you know, touch upon something more life enhancing, trying to sort of opt out of um, the stuff that negates all the good things that we would, you know, set out as as um, our priorities if really pushed or, you know, what really matters, what's really important. So all these networks, um, like the contact that we have with our friends, I'm sure everybody's talking to friends they haven't talked to for ages, talking to their family. But most importantly, what's really struck me this week is uh, the way that local food networks are um, being really strengthened and enhanced. I think pretty much everybody in the UK that that uh, runs any kind of box scheme is overwhelmed by demand, and people are just seeking us out. We've had we've had people in the village just calling up and saying, "Do you supply vegetables and and so on?" And uh, we've got wild garlic in our local shop. Things things that. Um, we just wouldn't have thought of doing a few weeks ago because we ourselves were frustratingly so busy sending food elsewhere and, and overlooking the opportunity that we've got to, to reach people in the village. We've started a, a Facebook group this week, Foraging for Kids, which uh, is just called that if you're on Facebook. I'm, not, I'm no fan of Facebook, but it seems to me uh, um, it, is, it is an effective way to reach people with information, and, and so I'm quite excited about this group. So all around, it just seems like, the, the way that we uh, connect in, in life-giving ways is being enhanced, and that's the network, you know, and, 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 and we have been forced to uh, withdraw from the, um, the you know, the machine-like just streams of things, you know. Whether you think about people commuting to London, there's this sort of pipe or conduit, which is an idea we touch on in this week's conversation uh, with Adrian Boots. You know, that's like a pipe of people going out to London and a pipe of people coming back uh, with no contact with their surroundings. And, and uh, uh, although there are exceptions to this, like there are groups of commuters that talk to each other and therefore make that a life-enhancing thing. Most people are on their phones, even with earphones on, right next to other human beings and not talking to them. So uh, everywhere you look, there's, there's these, um, these things of stuff moving around uh, without there being life-giving connections as a result of the movement. In fact, there's a severance of connections. And yet right now we see all of these wonderful, intricate linkings becoming more intricately linked. And that's what it's all about. You know, I've said uh, many times um, in, in the chats I give uh, on wild food walks and, and when I stand up and give talks and so on, I'm sure I've touched it on here, on it on here, you know, what we need is the emergence of this kind of uh, the the sum of the parts to come through, you know, like life emerging from organic chemicals billions of years ago, like consciousness emerging from lots of nerve cells being connected together till the point that uh, eventually there was a conscious being that emerged out of the sum of those parts. Um, you know, looking at the attempts we've made to make machines to to make things work, it's it's just it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Um, these are very limited connections that are highly efficient. Again, they're kind of conduits within the machine thing. Uh, whereas when we have uh, social and, and living systems. We can't control anything. All we can do is facilitate the emergence of something better, something good, something that is the the, uh, the greater than the sum of the parts. And the only way we can do that is by fostering these linkages. You know, the more connections we have, and the better quality those connections are, and the and the and the more diversity of the different uh, things that are being joined together, then we have these amazing uh, networks that give rise to emergent properties. And I think we're seeing community emerging. We're seeing local food systems emerging. And in that, we're seeing a f social fabric between people and landscapes emerging. And obviously, I feel the uh, the foraging thing is, is so uh, uniquely 
potent in that sense because it is a response to a network that is ecology in a particular place. And if our culture of food, our culture of what we do with our time together uh, starts being woven into that fabric of ecology, and then the uh, complexity of the compounds in all of those plants becomes woven into the fabric of our, uh, you know, this network, which is our bodies, you know, many cells and organs and tissues just woven together in a network, which is our bodies. You know, it is so, it's so uniquely and profoundly life enhancing. Okay. Um, I also wanted to give somebody else's words um, some space here. I, I, I frequently hear from Mark Lewis, who is on the earlier podcast. I say, you know, earlier as in a few months back, Mark is uh, a guy in, in Arizona. He is um, part of a Native American community there, but he's also working in a sort of outreach capacity to people there um, to gather them into wild foods. Anyway, you can go and check out Mark's um podcast there and you, you'll you'll get more of his story but he's uh he's constantly uh communicating to me the wonderful insights uh, from his situation there in Arizona and, and, and commenting on, on the global situation too. And he wrote me an email this week, which I did ask, would he, would he come and, and, and do a like a Skype message so we could have his voice reading it? But he's, he's asked me to read it myself. So I, uh, I'll, I'll do that just now. So he comments on last week's podcast and says, uh, the most recent conversation with Robin Harford brings you home, the senses, learning and not not just the science, but also the sensory experiences to ID the plants. Brothers and sisters, observation, intimacy and relations. Get the personalities out of the way, self-authority and confidence, community placards so neighbors can be delighted by learning about their gatherable neighbors, all the touchstones. Now think also on this, we are surrounded by all our relatives, alive things, not alive things, plants, animals, fungi, so much like us, bacteria much further away, but still our living family, but also that which is not alive, but powerful nevertheless, rocks, air, viruses. The coronavirus, COVID-19, is our relative. While the Western idea seems to be to engage the world to find a magic bullet to kill the invader, the indigenous view is that this is a relative we have wronged, now come, or sent, if you're into the Gaia hypothesis, to set things right. What we have to do is figure out what needs getting right, we must pay attention. We are experiencing deaths from the virus in the native community. Scary, since there are not enough of us to go around, not enough elders that we can afford to lose anymore, cognizant that viral warfare has been used against us in the very recent past. But we're still here. The hospital in our midst is a hive of activity now, with lots of trucks and choppers going in and out. I'm manning the farmer's market on Saturdays, doing a series of fermentation vids soon to be up on the web. A lot of folks deluging me with attention requests still selfishness in the midst of a lesson on the opposite yikes and then uh, this is in response to it he said a little bit more when i asked him would he would he uh, would he read that and he said no you you read it he said it'd be easier for you to just read the word so this is this is what he sent me this morning and i'll read that too surrounded by hummingbirds and new spring here old favorites back on the scene like chola flower buds yucca flowers grasses acacia and olive flowers citrus elderberry all the things we need to offer our brother COVID-19 to get him to settle down, plus various greens and bulbs like calicortus and others unexpected, but maybe the new norm with climate change, especially the cacti flowers. Palaverdi's way early. We walk through miracle gifts brought by our brothers and sisters. And don't forget your native strength. So this is him talking to me. Was a time when people remembered the seasons there, and that day comes again. 
The land offers up the gifts you need. It speaks to those who listen. And Mark goes on to uh, to post in the first uh, to, to that email. He posts in the first half of um, Chaucer's Prelude to the Canterbury Tales, which does seem very apt. I've had a go at reading it, but I can't really do justice to the old English. But I found a fantastic video by a guy called Raymond Crook. That's Crook with an E at the end. Uh, who's who's um, he does a beautiful version of it, which also has the old English translated into modern English. And he, and he sings it as a folk song. So um, I'm hoping to, uh, in time to get this posted, to get the, the MP3. I've reached out to him to ask whether he'd, he'd let us have the MP3. Uh, but um, if not, it's worth coming back because we, if, if, he, if he does it in a week's time, we'll add it to the end of the podcast. Uh, but we will provide a link to that. Um, but it's pretty cool. It, 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 um, it talks about people coming through the countryside in, in, in Kent and um, the sick seeking healing. It's, it's, all, it's all very apt. As Mark's words so often are, not that these are Mark's words, but you know he he has very aptly sent these words. Okay, so that's it um, for for the introduction. We'll get on now to the conversation with Adrian Boots. As you'll see, Adrian's a, a lovely guy, and and we've uh, we've had fun talking about poisonous plants and all sorts of things. So check out Adrian's website, and you you may want to um, tap into what he does in terms of um, outdoor experiences, learning some foraging and uh, other other bushcraft stuff on on, on one of his walks. Um, so yeah, we'll now get on to the chat with Adrian landscape ecology stuff i want to understand that stuff a lot better myself so yeah yeah sure really interesting area of work it is it is i mean i i I guess you know i'm not i'm not in academia anymore um uh, but when i was working in industry and by that i mean defra natural england that sort of thing i sort of carried on uh working at at the institutions and then obviously like i guess yourself some years ago i decided that was enough was enough and sort of now I'm doing my own thing now. So, but I can tell you a bit about landscape ecology if you want. Yeah, no, I'd love to love to hear you talk about that. It's really using the ecological principles to uh, and applying that to the landscape, a landscape scale rather. Yeah. So it's um, you know the, what I specifically worked in the area was looking at woods, sort of trees, hedges, um, that sort of thing, and my did some PhD research. Um, that was uh, basically around looking at the connectivity of of uh, woodland and hedges, and whether or not there was a, a sort of a you know um, uh, a movement of plants and uh, particularly uh, woody species from one to another here in the UK. So uh, that that was what I was very interested in. Unfortunately, I got quite distracted because of uh, there was a lot a lot of wild food around at the time when I was doing my research. So. Um, I was I was getting uh, uh, I was feeding myself, but also I guess about that sort of time I started to get really into the, the wild food side of things, which I guess would be about ninety nine sort of two thousand. You know, everyone's had the book uh, Food for Free, um, and so I thought, oh, that was interesting. So I went back to that uh, and reread that about that time, and I thought this is really a very very interesting um, uh, thing. So whilst I was looking at a specific thing for the research. In my mind, I was also thinking, oh, this is an interesting process also for uh, wild food. Is there a relationship between uh, a larger habitat of woodland and wild food uh, in hedges? So do, for example, does wild garlic, for example, follow that hedge line? Do you see what I mean? Does it sort of uh, creep across the landscape in in that way? Does it because obviously it requires shady 
um, you know, sort of shade, it likes that sort of uh, that sort of thing. And hedges are basically linear woodlands, um, so um, you don't often get patches of wild garlic in the middle of a field, so um, where it's dry and too much sun. So you know, uh, it was looking at those those sorts of principles. Um, and the upshot of that pretty much was that um, the edges of things, the edges of woods, you know, along hedgerows, that's where the interesting stuff tends to happen. Um, the middle of the woodland really isn't a very exciting place unless you've got a clearing. Um, so, so for me, it was uh, the edges of the woods. This is where most energy comes into the system. You know, it gets the most sort of nutrient, it gets the most light, it gets the most <laughs> rain. Um, and so edges of a woodland are the much more exciting locations. Um, and hedges are great big long edges, basically. So um, I did a lot of <laughs> um, studying of hedgerows. So that's kind of where it, it all started for me. Yeah. You have to forgive me. I'm 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 an obsessive compulsive rhymer, and I just picked up on your hedges and edges. <laughs> yes. I was if there's something to say about sedges, but <laughs> I'm sure we could get it in there somewhere. I mean, seriously, uh, are there sedges on the on the edges? Uh, well, it could well be, yeah, um, but not necessarily where I am. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm in out in the countryside here, up on the Mendip Hills, just southwest of Bristol, um, and this is the sort of area. Uh, in Somerset, where um, I did most of my research, so it doesn't tend to be a lot of sedges. Uh, we're up quite high and dry here, but on the Somerset levels, stacks of it. Well, there's pendulous. I am thinking of pendulous sedge as something I've seen on the edge of a, a woodland, like on a on a um, on yeah. a, uh, the, the, like a dikey situation, and there's lots of pendulous sedge there. Yeah, yeah. I, I can, I'm thinking of there's a, a woodland, a forest actually. It's uh, mainly um, planted up with pine and uh, um, that sort of spruce and stuff like that. Um, and in the darker, wetter edges of, of that along the tracks, there's sort of, um, uh, yeah, there's uh, pendulous sedge along there. Not so much where I am. It's much drier and higher here. Um, okay, yeah. So, yeah, when you get, think where I'm based on the Mendip Hills here, it's... Um, it's interesting we get a lot of rain but the rain because it's limestone and water just drops straight through it and comes out yeah. uh, spring line on the edge of the uh, much lower down in the valley so um where that woodland situated it's a bit lower than where we are so yeah a lot of rain to get to get your mushrooms coming up then well yeah it's it, there, is, there are mushrooms here but it's it's not a fantastic mushroom area where i am it's a bit of a shame really there is I mean, this is something I try and communicate to people. You've got to go out a lot. You've got to be out a lot of the time to see where this stuff is. You no good sort of going, right, I'm going to go mushroom foraging today. And on that particular day, there's nothing. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, you've got to find, you've got to be out all the time so you can see where the patches are, um, where where this stuff, you know, woodblooks come up with, this, you know, in the same spot, not necessarily year after year, but in that location. Yeah. Uh, and so I wouldn't say it was a fabulous area for that. I mean, I, I, originally I come from the New Forest, uh, which was always seemed to be, you know, provide so much fungi. Uh, here it's, it's it's quite sparse in comparison, but it is around. It is around. Yeah, yeah. And and going back to what I sort of knocked us off there with talking about sedges, but like the the, uh, the the edges thing, I do think that's fascinating. And it's also the fact that you know, being an edge. Means it's a it's a it's a boundary of of two different kinds of places, isn't it? 
Absolutely. You've got this meeting point between two completely different kinds of ecology. That is that is the where the magic happens, if you like. Yeah. Uh, fields, for example, can be very bland places. Um, if you've got a you know a silage field that's just full of ryegrass and clover, um, apart from the clover, there's not a lot going on necessarily in that field. Um, if it hasn't been disturbed for too long, you might be lucky and get some fungi come up. But mainly, it's that transition point between that field and say the field boundary and the where a hedge line or indeed a fence might be because fences of you know birds land on fences and they deposit their little packets of loveliness there and they might drop some seed in you get a naturally sort of um dispersed hedge along a fence line all of a sudden you've got elder you've got bramble um and uh, so it's they're not bad it's not bad places for foragers to go to look really is um I try to sort of say to people, there's no point in wandering off into the middle of the field, walk around the edge of it. You're much more likely to find something interesting, either a shrub or a plant, you know, um, that is going to be edible uh, at any time of the year. Middle of the field usually is a pretty dull place to be, unless it used to have a hedgerow across the middle of it one time that's been grubbed out, and you might have a solitary tree stuck out in the middle of the field. Um, or indeed where that tree used to be, if it was recently felled um, or cut down by a farmer, you might find around that one little spot, you'll find something interesting, you know. Um, so there might be a collection of uh, different plants that really are sort of um, shade loving plants, but haven't got the message yet that the actual tree that was shading them has disappeared a long time ago. Um, so normally, I, for example, uh, I sort of encourage people to um, be careful when they're picking things like um, sorrel yeah. because of um, looking a bit like lords and ladies. And I always sort of say, go to the middle of the field. <laughs> Interestingly, if you're going to pick sorrel, don't pick it from around the edges. It's, you know, you've got uh, lords and ladies looks far too similar. Um, but I have had examples where um, there has been a historic boundary or um, a, a, a tree and that shady spot has been enough um, to allow uh, lords and ladies to still grow in the middle of the field. So there's never one rule of thumb that works. All the time. Yeah, that's disc- yeah. Okay, I'll have to add that to my list of of uh, what you call it. Um, well, I don't know things you add on to qualify the blanket statement you've just made. Yeah, so. that's it. Yeah, because because you know people are always asking you is is there an easy quick fix is there a rule of thumb you can give me is there some easy to remember sort of nugget of information that will last uh, that i can just go out and do and there is yeah go and pick your sorrel from the middle of a field middle of a uh, you know a, a permanent pasture or a meadow or something but i have seen examples of um lords and ladies being in the middle of the field so it doesn't work every time so you do have to show them the um the lords and ladies and the sorrel together so that they can really see the differences well it's funny you should mention lords and ladies because i've had i've had two uh, lords and ladies situations arise this week so i i have a friend who who um actually came on a fermentation course the other week and we did a tiny bit of foraging and it kind of makes me realize that a tiny bit of foraging is probably more of a hindrance than a help <laughs> yeah what I've managed to do is get this lady excited about the notion that she can go out and pick stuff. But the bit I did on the foraging was so cursory. Yeah. I, and, I, and I was deliberately zipping my lip, you know, to not 
say too much. I thought we'll be out here for an hour and a half. And yeah. this is a fermentation course where I got to quickly show people this yeah. is, I realized, you know, it was dangerous because what has happened is my friend was out for a long walk, uh, with her family and I get a phone call from her husband saying she's eaten something. Oh, she's tingling and numb. Oh, tingling and numb. But I said this to my wife and she said, she said, she's eating lords and ladies. I said, yeah, but tingling? You'd say burning, wouldn't you? Yeah, burning, yeah. Maybe she's trying to downplay it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, anyway, it turns out when they sent a photograph, it was lords and ladies. And oh, she God, had God. thought it was Doc. I mean, no. me, dear friend, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, but I, I don't know how she got Doc and lords and ladies confused. But it made me realize I had, I had done a dangerous level of informing there. So yeah. not all these disclaimers. Because um because that happened. And then uh the second thing that happened this week, the following day, I don't know, it was it was like I was someone was tugging my sleeve going, You need to be thinking more about lords and ladies. <laughs> because the following day I'm out in, in a piece of woodland near me, uh visiting a wild garlic patch actually, and I found a little hole in the ground and inside that hole I mean it wasn't deep, it was like maybe an inch deep or a bit bit more, I saw a patch of white. And at first I thought, maybe it's a truffle, you know, that some animal, and I, maybe I disturbed this animal a minute ago because it looks so bright and fresh. Yeah. It's this white patch an inch and so down. But I excavated further, and what I picked up was a large lords and ladies tuba. Wow. Nibbled by some creature. And you just know what's happened. That yeah. creature who we would assume they all know you can't eat that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you could, it couldn't eat that. It's eaten enough very, very quickly before the calcium oxalate crystals kick in. <laughs> if anyone listening doesn't understand this, calcium oxalate is, is nasty little crystals which are like shards of glass with hooks on that happen to be laced with a, with a, with a, uh, what, what, what in this context you'd think of as an irritant poison called protease. But in another context, in your stomach, that's an enzyme that dissolves protein. But when it's in your mouth, poisoning your mouth, it's an end, uh, enzyme dissolving you. Not <laughs> a <laughs> protein. So it hurts like hell. Yeah, yeah. This poor little mouse, or whatever it was, has eaten that much and then suddenly gone, ah! <laughs> and probably not, not far away from where I was foraging that, that for the garlic and found that little hole. Yeah, good lord. Well, I. I a funny little lords and ladies stories um i had i had went to a uh, um a, a relative of my wife um and had a party in the garden and where the flower there was some lords and ladies along the hedge and where the flower spike grows and you've got the 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 sort of berries if you like going from green to orange to red um uh they were in their sort of orange orangey red phase uh, at that point and um they had a, a young a young child and this child got bored because the adults were all having a barbecue, gone along to the um, uh, these these berries and decided to investigate. Um, but you'll be pleased to know he didn't eat them. He stuck them up his nose. So so they, they called me over, considering that I, I knew about these things. Uh, but all I did was hook them out of his nostrils. It wasn't actually, do you know what I mean? So he didn't eat them, which is, that's the worst it's ever got uh, for me. Um and that was fortunately uh, not not very serious, but uh, yeah, I, I can imagine it'd be uh, rather bad if someone uh, did eat uh, that. And it's a bit like dog's mercury as well. I always say the clue is in the name, but 
there are no signs. There are no little plaques next to Dogs Mercury saying, don't eat me. Um, weirdly, some years ago, um, I was doing, many, many years ago, I was doing a conservation thing in, in some, um, some woodland, and somebody had a young uh, dog. It was a bit bigger than a puppy, and it was running around grabbing mouthfuls of Dogs Mercury. Right. And yeah, yeah, and it was doing like a scatty sort of crazy dog thing. It was running out and back, running out and back, and it was grabbing mouthfuls of vegetation as it was going uh, and eating it. And we were chasing this dog, trying to stop him, and he thought it was a great big game. Uh, and then very, very soon afterwards, he was he was vomiting uh, bright green, fluffy, frothy, you know, um, and had terrible diarrhea later as well. Again, green. It survived, but um, it was quite sick. So, so yeah, it's um, yeah. I, I think you're right. Animals don't necessarily instinctively know. They will experiment and maybe bite the big one as a result, but maybe not. Um, weirdest thing I've ever actually sticking out of the ground, if just as we were talking about it, it was a it was a set of chicken feet, a pair of feet, stuck out of the this bank, and I, I was. I thought, no, it can't be possible. A chicken's flown into this. No, 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 don't be daft. Anyway, so I pulled the, the feet out and there was like a completely consumed carcass. You know, there was bits and bobs on it, you know, feathers and bone and wings and stuff. And I pulled this thing out and what it, it must have been a ferret or a stoat or something, I don't know, something of that nature had got hold of a chicken and dragged the whole thing in and just left its feet sticking out. And that was, I thought that was pretty incredible. Uh, you couldn't mistake what it was, obviously, but I, I can't. I can't imagine a rat would do that. It, it had to have been something that's capable of carrying many times its own body weight. Um, to drag so, it on the ground, you think? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty freaky. <laughs> so, Mark, got any other good tales about uh, uh, mis misdiagnosis? Well, I think we could, we could, we could, uh, we could definitely say more about lords and ladies because. Um, I mean, that's my only personal poisoning plant plant poisoning story. Personally, is is when I first um, got started, and I, you know, I'd read all the books and and things like that, and 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 then, but you you don't always remember all the information. Well, quite, yeah. And and food for free was my reference point for for um, lords and ladies. The only bit I remembered was that it had the tuber that people had eaten, and yeah, I'd yeah. forgotten the the important bit of information. That according to maybe and lots of other people, there were ways that people rendered those tubers edible. Uh, so I only for, remember the last bit, <laughs> not the fact that they're poisonous and need rendering edible. Yeah. <laughs> so I was that mouse, like uh, yes. some years ago. You know, I I I was again picking wild garlic, but somehow the the ground was loose, and I don't know how I ended up with this tuber in my hand, but I did, and I knew it belonged to the lords and ladies. And 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 I took a nibble. Well, interesting experiment. Yeah, but but, but I, I didn't think I was experimenting. I thought I was eating a good edible thing. Yeah, forgotten. It was you know half partial recollection. So just you know that yeah. you know, you you really need to be a bit more circumspect. Sure. I mean, it's very interesting. I've I've done a lot of bushcraft over the years, and I've, I've run quite a few bushcraft courses and. Uh, um, you know, studied with some very, very interesting people, you know, Ray Mears, Lars Falk, uh, Mors Kahansky, um, over the years. And, um, you know, often what that, you know, 
these guys, it's really interesting. When you read a, um, a lot of the bushcraft sort of books about wild food, they're talking about survival mode and they'll, they'll, they'll say, you know, you can nibble a little bit of this and wait so many seconds and then try some more and then wait a few minutes and so on. And I've heard this trotted out so many times, not, not by these guys, mind, not by the, the guys that I've um, uh, been lucky enough to um, study with, but uh, uh, by other members of the sort of um, bushcraft world. Um, and I don't know where they get it from, the SAS handbook, I don't know what yeah. it is. But for me, that is, it's a bit of a nonsense, really, because at the end of the day, there is lots of knowledge out there. Um, there are some brilliant books and there's some great people you can go and study with. Um, the best thing to do is to take that knowledge with you into the countryside rather than start experimenting on yourself with, with potential disastrous consequences. So it really is, you know, I, the amount of times I've, I've heard that and I, I've said, I'm really sorry. I, was, I just don't buy that. You know, we're not back in the you know Mesolithic period trying to work out what we can eat and what we can't eat and experimenting on ourselves. You know, we've got a body of knowledge and we should be taking that knowledge with us, you know, um, and applying it. You don't, you know, there's historical records, there's, you know, there's people out there that know this stuff. You know, you've got to be able to um, access that first and arm yourself with that knowledge. Obviously, you need the experience. You've got to practice um, uh, to get good at this sort of thing. But you know, I don't think there is a, a need to experiment on anything at all, you know, uh, and risk <laughs> risk yourself. Interestingly, one of the worst examples of poisoning I've come across was actually um, an agricultural uh, setting. I had to go out to uh, uh, meet uh, a grazier who'd lost um, a herd of beef cattle, whole herd, gone, dead. And what happened is, is they were in a field that had been flooded. And so the center of the field was full of water. So they weren't grazing there. They were grazing around the edges of the field because they were raised. And what, what happened is when you've got these ditches that are cleaned out, all the tailings are put up on the on the bank, basically, and it builds up uh, higher sides to the fields eventually over time. And that means that when it when when they do get flooding or you know the fields fill up with water, um, it's only the banks that have got a decent amount of grass on them so they're on the bank eating eating, eating the grass and then they're pushing in the sides and exposing tubers um and uh you know it was um hemlock water drop war um which is pretty much one of the most poisonous things you can you can lay your hands on um and uh, unfortunately these they were all um they were fairly young cattle so they might not have had the herd experience, if you know what I mean, they might not have had the experience of um, having older cows teaching them. You know, they, they probably weren't hefted to that environment, if you like. They weren't, um, you know, they were young stock and they probably hadn't had a lot of contact with older animals, which would have taught them to avoid it. Yeah. And so what happened is they were running out of grass on the banks. They exposed these uh, the, 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 the the tubers of hemlock water drop what ate yeah. them and not very long afterwards were properly dead and so when i got there it was a field full of um you know young stock that basically were all bloated uh, and this only happened the day before they died you know there's nothing we could do um you know it's unfortunate i mean the, the grazier was looking for some sort of compensation or something i don't know but uh, um i don't think that was going to happen because if you're grazing animals in a field that 
where there's no grazing in essence, they are going to look for something to eat. When yeah. all the grass is gone, they're going to look for something to eat. So there was a stocking issue, unfortunately, um, and a suitability of the ground that it was on. Now, you know, I appreciate not everyone can stick their animals in a shed during the winter, um, but that, that was a really tough, really tough lesson to learn because um, it was upsetting to see the animals like that, upsetting for the grazier, obviously, um, and it was just a, a poor situation. But it was at that point that I, you know, really got into Hemlock Waterdrop as a, uh, as a, um, as a, a, a plant of interest. Yeah. And when, when doing foraging courses, um, I, I basically tell everyone to avoid umbellifers, full stop because they're just too tricky, I think, for most people. Uh, and I think that links back quite nicely to, you know, this person that you were trying to show, you know, who, who picked the lords and ladies, you know, it's the amount of time you could spend all your time just doing edible umbellifers and the poisonous ones. And I think people still would get it wrong because it's just, they're just too similar. Just, I think in a lot of people's minds, they, they want to do, they, they're so quick, they're so in a rush to pick something that's, that is edible, that is a wild food, that I think that sometimes excitement gets the better of them, and uh, uh, that'd be that. Same is very true for mushrooms as well. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time drawing up tables for my book, yeah, comparing the edible and the toxic umbellifers. And you know, there is so much detail when you start getting down to it, it's a big subject. So, how I tend to approach it is you know, if you want to do these plants, this is something that's going to require quite a lot of work in terms of learning the plants you know if you if you want to just go out and forage something start with nettles yes. because you cannot misidentify <laughs> it it didn't sting you it's not a nettle easy yeah. you know so you know i kind of put it give it to, to people like you 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 decide your level of engagement but but you know these ones there is a risk involved whereas you know if we if we deal with the cabbage family it's safe as houses you know or safe as mustard you might say so uh, yeah it's kind of mapping out the territory for people so they can choose but i agree you know that's it's i mean our our um classic thing with hemlock hemlock water drop wall which which for anyone listening the 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 deal with hemlock water drop wall is it it, is it's a it's an aquatic plant uh and it looks somewhat like flat leaf parsley or 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 celery and unfortunately my absolute favorite wild herb which is wild celery grows right alongside it and we have two different places that we know of in kent where the two plants are growing right next to each other and we we just we don't harvest from them i mean it's as simple as that we just don't it is so spine chillingly alarming <laughs> when you when you see the two plants right next to each other you could you could so easily accidentally pick one leaf i mean i wouldn't now but but like we've just kept that as a rule. Like um, don't just don't go to that territory of picking a poisonous plant, uh, edible plant, right? And it's the same with hemlock water drop. Uh, sorry, uh, hemlock and and uh, yep. our party they yep, grow. Absolutely. Right. But you know it's it's funny we we do seem to be uh, finding a um a topic with some meat here for this chat. <laughs> like <laughs> a, you know the poisonous one because because um. You know, I do say to people on foraging walks, I say, look, I've got two jobs here, I think, two main jobs anyway. One is to inspire you as to the yes. many wonderful edible possibilities. And the other is to just slightly scare the shit out of you. Because <laughs> if I do one without the other, I am leading you into a dangerous place yeah. without you realizing yeah. that it's actually a dangerous place, you know. 
it, but it's, it's almost it's almost the best bit of a of a foray really is to scare people senseless you almost put them off <laughs> you know, to, how bad do you want it sort of thing you know do you <laughs> do you want it badly enough <laughs> to navigate these hazards yeah it's interesting there's some fungi as well i mean it, it's, you know there's you know, there's for every virtually for every edible one, there is one that looks very similar that is inedible or possibly poisonous. And uh, I, I think that nature plays a bit of a joke on us, really, uh, uh, with, with all this, um, uh, which I kind of love as well. You know, it is a, uh, it's a yeah, it keeps you on your toes. It's an interesting thing. You know, I, I, I mean, there's lots of examples, but I, I, I think people back to what I was saying before, I think people do want a shortcut with all this. Um, and they do they want to know what they can do very very quickly and go out straight away and i just think it takes a little bit longer a little bit more practice um you know, and I, I always sort of joke you know you can always uh, practice on someone else if you don't like them <laughs> it's uh, yeah yeah but i mean it's an unfortunate situation we're, we're in that, that we we don't know this stuff you know like um i mean i, I always remember listening to francois couplan a uh, great uh, uh, French forager. He gave he gave a talk um, at this event I was at, and he and he basically his talk was showing people a bunch of plants. That was it. This is cleavers. This is this. This is this. This is this. And then he just stopped and looked at everybody. And says, "How is it you people don't know this?" <laughs> and I just thought that was very. It, it needs to be said, you know. Like, yeah. how is it that you are? an organism that isn't two years old, you know, you are sitting there in this seat looking at me and you're like 20, 25, 30, 35, going up through the ages, all of these different age groups sitting in front of me. How can you be alive on the planet for this many years and not know this, what I've just told you? Because this is actually just fundamental that you're, you're, you're a living organism. You would know what to eat in the place where you are, you know, and and I think it's 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 so um, I just think that needs saying, you know, that that this is really really dysfunctional. That here you are, a human being that wanders about every day, gets up, does what you do, and goes to sleep again, and you manage to be in this place and be totally oblivious to all of these other organisms, which are right there, tailored in a in a sense to your needs because you've co-evolved with with biochemical needs in your body practical needs you know you it's all out there for you to 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 weave together for clothes and, and pull together for meals and, and whatever you know it's all there and you, yeah. you you're oblivious oh dear you know it's like we're we're we're, we're really uh well you know it's like that thing in avatar did you watch that film avatar i've really yeah, seen avatar yes yeah and where he's stumbling around and 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 the lady who he actually hooks up with she says you're like a baby. You don't know what to do, you know, and, and, and we're like that, aren't we? Unfortunately. And, and, and I just think it's, it is embarrassing. We've been caught naked, you know, like, uh, and, 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 and what, unfortunately, part of what we're doing when we do these foraging walks is, is address the fact that these helpless human beings that, that, that we're talking to, but knowing that you and I are also helpless human beings because, you know, we, sure. it doesn't matter how much you and I have been really getting stuck in. So this as a, as a, as a subject matter in an area of actively engaging, you know, if we didn't start when we were two, like normal, <laughs> would, you know, yes. and they're tiny, yeah. 
yeah. then we're going to be playing catch up for the rest of our life, you know, actually, because Absolutely. we're supposed to know this when we're tiny. I mean, a lot of uh, anthropologically, a lot of other, you know, sort of uh, tribal cultures that still practice, you know, sort of hunting, gathering and the, the foraging uh, element, they have done it, like you say, from two years old. Um, we've completely lost that in the, in, the, in in our society, well, Western world, I guess. And so we can only ever play catch up. And uh, it's the thing is, is, you know, I believe we are all hunter gatherers at heart. We've all got yeah. it's in our DNA. And even the most urbanized person, you take them out and get them to pick, say, wild garlic, you know, the joy that they experience, you know, and it's and it's very interesting. I always say to people, look at the shape that person is making, that sort of slightly stooped, reaching out, that picking you know, collecting, gathering um, pose that people make. That has been done for the last 100,000, 250,000 years. It's incredible. What a direct link to, you know, our ancestors. Um, and, you know, it's very interesting. I think that we've become very isolated from that. Our wonderful agrarian society, you know, we've gone from being, um, you know, sort of generalists in a way where we, like you say, we make our own clothes, we feed ourselves we know which animals to follow which time of year you know we know what, what all this stuff does well, it's what i guess bushcraft is today you know it's this sort of uh, having the knowledge about what different things can do for you um but these you know these uh, we've ended up becoming specialists you know we're, we're you know we rely on someone else to provide our food we rely on someone else to you know provide the heating we rely on someone else to do our technology we rely on someone else to make our clothes make our shoes um, and we in turn, you know, go off and uh, are specialised our, ourselves. You know, we go maybe drop drop in the car, get in the car, drive to work, go and do our, you know, we're little worker bees basically. And well, um, we, I'll I'll let you can, but I can't help butting in because what I was thinking while you were saying that is a quote from some book I read years ago where he said the guy said specialisation is for insects. <laughs> Well, we, we, maybe we live in a more insectoid society. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's very interesting. We, you know, we, I don't know. I, I, I sort of, I can only imagine what it was like to, to be in, you know, historic days gone by, you know, but I've got a pretty good idea. When you're hanging out in the woods, spending time outside, you know, you're collecting stuff to, to cook on a campfire. Um, you know, you're adding it to ingredients that you've brought along with you. You know, you might well be, sleeping under canvas um you know you get some inkling about you know what, what how people managed in in times gone by and i you know i also think that uh interesting you mentioned linking back to sedge earlier i wouldn't i've always thought that just calling our ancestors hunter gatherers is a bit limiting right. you know i think there were hunter gatherers hunter gatherer gardeners the forerunning to farmers so they would take the seed that they were collecting and just chuck it around and so they would knew it was there they come back the following year so they might have been moving around the landscape but they were also affecting that landscape they were clearing areas so they could get deer they would have been chucking seed around because they know a particular plant would be more abundant as a result um, when you, you come back and also there's no cutoff point you know people still continue to forage and gather uh, uh, and even when farming kicked in, they all of a sudden didn't throw down their tools necessarily, you know, tools of hunting and go, 
stuff that I'm going to pick up the uh, a, a hoe right away, you know, and get stuck into to that. I think that you know, pe- farmers still go and shoot in today. They still hunt today. So I don't think there was necessarily. I guess it's really hard to pinpoint that in the archaeological record. It seems like there's a, a clear changeover point, but people still continue to gather. Um, it wouldn't show up in the re- in an archaeological record, but why would you stop when you've got such a great range of stuff right there? Well, I think we can see when when farming became much more dominant in, in terms of like more people doing it on a larger scale. But there's no, as you say, there's no record that shows when when the other stuff ceased to happen because it didn't cease to happen. No, quite. And the, th- the, the point that we've reached now where agriculture is so uh, antithetical to, to, to foraging, that, that's a very new situation because all over the world, as you say, people, people are still gathering wild plants and a lot of them are, are small-scale subsistence farmers Absolutely. who treat the weeds as, as part of their crop. This is part of the cycle. They yes, don't yes. yank weeds out and throw them away. They say, oh, thank goodness for that. The fat hen is through. And yes. the crop isn't through yet. Yeah, now yeah. we've got something, some, some green vegetables to use or sell at market, you know. So, yeah, it definitely isn't. But, but, the, but, the, but agriculture coming in is something which is, which is much more dominant. I think there's a load of things that come in with that, which, which are, um, you know, they give a very heavy footprint that, that we're still, you know, but, but, but I mean, yeah, I mean, there's like, like my favorite example of which I know pitifully small amounts, but, but like the, the, agri- the sorry, the, uh, the, um, Australian indigenous, uh, land management practices, they, they did stuff like that. I don't know how much you've looked into it, Adrian, but, but, but stuff like on the banks of the rivers, they would have this, uh, this yellow, um, daisy yam. Um, and they would gradually just, boost that population and they'd have different zones there and and and, and but this this was this never crossed the line into what we call agriculture it just meant yeah. that there was these very managed wild habitats where the ecosystem had been worked with they'd enhanced what was there and then the other example obviously is the amazing sophisticated diversity of things they did with fire different kinds of fire absolutely just different times of year different kinds of places so the effect of one one tool i.e fire being used in all these different subtle ways was incredibly and profoundly diverse in terms of its impact on plant and animal populations. So that they they really, really were managing almost every square inch of that landscape very actively yes. and never crossed the line, in my opinion, into domestication. And 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 therefore they were still in this very reciprocal, non-coercive, non-power relationship yes. situation with the land, which which I mean I put that down. I've said it before and I'll say it lots more times. I personally think that the Australian situation before uh, the, the major contact of invasion in 1788 was the most sophisticated civilization that's ever existed on the planet, you know, because it was continent wide, because it was so ancient. Nowhere else was there that kind of landmass no, with a 50,000 year old culture, which actually, you know, there weren't little groups here and little groups there. The whole continent the people had the same culture, obviously the diversity in the different regions, yes, but it was yes. the same culture. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it shows that, you you know, we we, we as a, a, a species can live somewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, 
can be a um, you know a, a symbiotic um, sort of relationship. So yeah, you can you can see that. I mean, you know, it's it's very uh, obviously you know we we, we sit in a, here now you know in, in a position of, of comfort, um, but you know we do. I, mean, I, I always am amazed, for example, when um, you read a lot of stuff about um, the Amazon and uh, places like that, and they're saying it's you know complete wilderness, and yet they're just now discovering that actually it's been subtly uh, rearranged, if you like, over thousands of years because people selectively pick certain things. Um, even elephants knock down stuff in Africa because they don't like it and they prefer something else. You know, and and so, you know, we've got this sort of, I call it gardening for want of a better word. It's a gardening type sort of tendency um, to select things that you prefer and those that you, you don't. You're starting to manage things in a particular way, but it doesn't flip right into, um, like you say, the heavy footprint of, of full agriculture. I, I find it a very in- interesting sort of subject to, to consider. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm... I'm- I'm quite tickled by using the word gardening because, like, I, I've been looking at the um, the first few chapters of Genesis, you know, like as as oh, yeah. as, as a, a, a source of insight, you know, because these these things are not written, you know, whatever any, anyone thinks, they didn't they didn't just come out of a, a vacuous imagination or, or or some, you know, they they come from somewhere, and 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 um, you know, the the Garden of Eden is 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 held up within that story as being this state that was really good and yeah, perfect. Yeah. And we're not there anymore. Well, what happens, you know, and I'm, I'm just reading, rereading the text of the, those first few chapters to see what comes when you kind of drill down into the detail. Yeah. And one thing is that, is that like, there's an exchange of um, an initial thing, which is obviously very relational if, if you look at it and, and very kind of no, you just, you, they were just gathering. They were just eating from the garden. Yeah. It sounds like hunter gatherers to me. And then there's this thing, but don't do this, you know, and, and I know people have run off on all kinds of weird theories about they were <laughs> to eat hallucinogenics and they did. And then yeah. they personally buy into that interpretation. You're welcome to it if you want that one. But like yeah. personally, I'm seeing that as a thing where they moved into a space of abstract knowledge, you know, Instead of just living, eating the fruit, and and just life coming, that, that we we now stand outside and we analyze everything, and yeah. we create these abstractions. So then we come back in with the fruit of our abstraction, which is a tool or a mechanism, or a technology or methodology that 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 has come from this abstract generalization, and then we move back in in a way that will guarantee an outcome. Now, if we can guarantee an outcome, that means we're in control. If we're in control, then we don't have to trust. So a friend of mine said it's a refusal of contingency. That 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 contingency is this thing where you you something together with I forget what it is. I'd have to look it up. Uh, but it's it's like in contingency. I I I can't go it alone. I've got to move with you. You know because you know I can do my bit, but I need your response. Otherwise, this thing that that's you and me back and forth together doesn't happen. If I'm in control, contingency is out the window. You know now it's like I will guarantee this because I do this, but I don't need to trust you. I don't need to wait for you. I'm just going to plow on and do it, you know, and plow on and do it is the operative word because <laughs> yes, of course, right, yeah. just funny language gives you those <laughs> when you're on a roll. So, so, um, 
Anyway, so what happens is that they, they do that business of saying, okay, I choose knowledge, abstract knowledge to stand outside and have this, you know, it's greatly to be desired, you know, to, to, to be in that position, you know, it's all very well you saying you're going to take care of me, God or garden or land or whatever it is, you know, I, I, that's too mamby pamby. I, I need more guarantee, you know, I need, I need to, so now I'm going to have, I'm going to seize the reins by having this abstract knowledge and coming. And it says, when 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 the when the exile happens in that story, it says Adam was sent forth to plow. <laughs> so he's kicked out and said, "Okay, go and do it then." Yeah. You don't want to be in here. You want to be out there. Off you go and take your plow with you. And then what happens is that um, the son of uh, Adam and Eve had got two sons. One of them is a is a is a husbandman of, of of animals, which seems to be kind of okay in comparison to. The fact that the guy that, that's, that's plowing the ground and producing vegetables, God doesn't like his offering. And, and I just think there's something in that that, 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 that <laughs> just didn't really get the royal seal of approval. You know, because plowing, you know, that's the whole point. You wanted that yeah. control. So anyway, he's really pissed off because he doesn't get, get the brownie points for his offering. Abel's offering is cool and his is not. Yeah. And what does he do? He kills his brother, you know. And, 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 then, and then the story God has a chat with him about that and says, well, you know, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to good, just be a vagabond and, and get out from here now, you know, and the earth is not going to yield her good to you. So he says, my, he says, oh, it's too much because you've turned your face, you have turned your face from me and the earth has turned her face from me. Feminine, you know, yeah. feminine. The earth has turned her face from me. And, and so anyway, that's, that's what I've got out of it so far that, that this, this actual, this story, which everyone would say, you know, these, this book is is a is a paradigm for all this terrible patriarchal culture and this that and that and wrecking the planet and and so on. Well, I think actually if you dig around in this text, it's actually saying that this 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 disaster happened because of this exit from Eden, which was basically the beginning of farming. The first murderer was the first guy to plow in the story. Fascinating. That's fascinating. I mean, you know, from listening to what you're saying there, you know, it's. It really is, um, you know, it's about our control of nature or our supposed control of nature. But also it's about a lack of or a control or a lack of control of ourselves. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, it's I guess we all like to compartmentalize and because and, it makes making sense of the world a lot easier. Um, and if we can give it a name and put it in a box, then it makes it even better still. And you know, I get that completely. Um, but it's what it is, is again, it's, it's, it's assuming we are, are separate from nature and we don't actually need to rely on it because, hey, we can produce as much food as we like. Um, and, you know, we can have it here instantly. Um, and the fact is, is it just doesn't work like that. It, in reality, you know, natural systems that are, you know, even farmers rely on you know they need the soil um okay i know that i know at the minute they're sort of talking about growing it in you know in air or water you know well that's all very well and good but you you won't be able to scale that up anytime soon you know so it's got to be the soil or, or nothing pretty much right now um and I, you know i just think that uh you know in our western world particularly we you know science is brilliant and um you know but also it's that separating yourself away from from nature 
um, so that you can observe it and then make observations and uh, you know and scientific discoveries about it. But I also think that that whilst that is real benefit to that, you still need to go hold on a minute. You know, you breaking natural systems so you can impose your will on the top is part of. You know, I know it's what we kind of do, but it's also an issue as well. It's also a problem. And um, whilst I accept that, you know, I mean, people say to me when I'm doing courses, yeah, so do you eat wild food all the time? And I'm like, no, 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 I'll, you know, I'll go to the shops too, you know. I mean, I'm not just, I don't just eat wild food. But you, you've got to put everything in perspective. And I, I think that um, we as a, uh, you know, as a, uh, a species, oh, I don't know, I guess we want to, we've always done it. We always want to improve our lot. We always want to control nature um, to a certain degree. Very interesting with the current circumstances we're experiencing right now. Clearly, nature's got other plans. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got to wonder about maybe this is not a bad time to start thinking about how we do stuff, you know, how we uh, break our connections with nature. Um, and maybe we should start thinking that actually, um, I don't know, globalization isn't the be all and end all and uh, intensifying everything we do isn't the be all and end all. And that actually we should start considering some of our, um, our reconsidering some of our, our behaviors and our relationship with, uh, with nature. I mean, I, I found your, your, your story there absolutely fascinating. You know, it's so interesting um, the way you, you, you put it. It really, for me, it really, um, yeah, it's sort of the first example of, uh, you know, of that break from foraging to farming. I mean, it's funny, you know, farming and farmers aren't bad, isn't a bad thing and aren't bad people. We wouldn't be here if we weren't, weren't for farming, you know, and it's, uh, um, but I think we're all going to need to think long and hard about our future relationship with, with the land uh, and what we expect from it. Um, I, I think that uh, um, some sort of uh, revolution does need to occur. I don't know whether getting back to nature fully is going to is going to work. I, I think that um, the volume of food needs to be produced, you know, won't be matched by that straight away. But I do feel that um, uh, there'd be no harm in uh, you know just having such a greater variety of stuff available and actually getting out. If people don't get out and uh, pick their own things, yeah. you know, um, then there is a real disconnect. I kind of links back to what you were saying way back at the beginning. Um, if you can engage people with the outdoors or nature, then I feel that they can um, very much appreciate it a bit more. And there's something about picking that thing and putting it in your mouth. There is a connection there. There is something that really... Um, well, not only does it take us back to our ancestors, but it, it engages you with nature in, in no other way, you know, that I can think of. Um, I know people like to grow stuff in their garden and say, oh, you've got to try potatoes from the garden. It's way better than potatoes from the shops. Well, it's exactly the same with things that you forage, wild food. Nothing better than, than getting that, that sorrel or, or ramsons, you know, and getting it fresh and doing something with it straight away. It's, it's remarkable. And I don't see why you can't do that in towns, you know, and, and urban areas. You know, there's plenty of when I go to cities and 
parks and gardens and or walking along canal or whatever it is I'm doing, I'm always looking for wild food, you know, and thinking, oh, you can eat that. And I won't eat that because it's got dog shit on it, but I can, you know, technically you could eat that. Um, you know, there's there's ready sources of food for people that, that are minded to go and look for it, even in, in uh, concrete jungles. Sorry, there's a bit of ramble. No, it's good. All good things to say. Uh, I guess you can end up covering so many different subjects with, with this. And I, it's interesting. I think that you're, what you're, you're doing is interesting because it's linking, you know, it's looking at this stuff and linking it to um, what we do today. I mean, what would you suggest is, uh, as, you know, how do you feel about, um, you know, farming and foraging? Do you feel that um, the two can sort of coexist together? Do you think there's a future for this sort of thing? Um, well, I, all I see is is this conundrum, yeah, of of uh, disconnection and a sort of former state of affairs where where we were fully integrated, you, you know, in every respect. Like, you know, as in we were integrated with each other far more than we are now. Far more, you know, yeah. culture that 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 by the things that we habitually do, and we. Uh, when I, you know, we as individuals, but like we as people that live in a certain place habitually do uh, certain practices year after year, generation after generation, you know, weaving a fabric between people and between people and the landscape. My observation would be that farming, alongside so many other things which are the fruit of our science and technology, reduces the number of linkages that, that, that are there. And that's the problem. So, I mean, I think when you start, and I've had this conversation so many times, I, I, I'm, I'm radical. I think we should cancel agriculture. That's, that's my kind of <laughs> – it was a mistake. So many books out there now with people saying this was the worst thing we ever did, you know. Yeah. You know, and guns, guns, germs, and steel, you yeah. know, all these other the, – the, 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 what's it, against the grain. So, so many people saying the same thing. Look, this is a big mistake. Uh, nobody except my mate Tor Nortranders, who did this amazing talk called Wild to Tame and Back Again a few years ago, is is really adding to to, to a movement that that in in my view is what we need a campaign to cancel agriculture. Because if it was such a mistake, why are we saying that we'll carry on doing that? And it's because everybody's saying, look, yes, but the 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 carrying capacity is much greater now. Uh, uh, sorry, the carrying capacity of the land is limited. Population is much greater. Hunter-gatherers could do that because of the ratio of carry capacity to, to species. And I think that's the wrong place to start. Firstly, we cannot get up tomorrow morning and all become hunter-gatherers. So we don't need to solve this argument, could we, couldn't we, in the yeah. sense of, you know. What we could do, though, is recognize the benefit of there being really, really, really many, many intimate, intricate connections between ourselves and other species. Because every time we do anything... And every time we need something, there's an opportunity there to get that by this sort of conduit means, like a pipe channeling you, you know, beans from Kenya, uh, power from the national grid, yeah. whatever it is, the information superhighway, you know, money is another conduit, you know, you get what you need just by paying the price, you know. So it all comes flooding to you through this pipe, you know. And that's the modern way that's, that f starts with farming and, and carries on through all these technologies that basically simplify everything so that you need fewer linkages, you need fewer relational things to happen in order yeah, to get yeah. that. Whereas in the past, in order to get my eggs, my milk, my everything, I needed to talk to my neighbors, 
Yeah. I need, all of this stuff needed to happen in order to get the stuff I need. You know, so again, it's Garden of Eden stuff. You know, we can either relate and be contingent, or we can say, no, I just want it. Can't I just yeah, have it? Yeah. Here's the money. <laughs> don't talk to me. I don't want to talk to you. Just give it to me. Yeah. Now we're just a supermarket. We don't even need a person. You know, we just swipe it through the machine. I hate machines so much. I always queue up. It doesn't matter how the big queue is. I cannot stand to be stuck with this machine where I don't know what to do. And, and you know, anyway, so it's all, it's all conduits versus the network, you know, worth the fabric of life. So what my argument is like, I'm not going to say, could we eat wild food, n- 9 billion, blah, 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 or at least feel like I'm responsible to come up with the answer of how, you know? Yeah, yeah. I will say, could we reintegrate with the fabric of life by seeing everything we do as an opportunity to, to relate and be contingent? Yeah, we could do that. So why don't we step on that journey? I think if we stepped on that journey, we would find maybe in a thousand years time, we were back to where we were. You know, I, everything we do is, is this reciprocal thing with the wild. Yeah. The wild is supplying plenty. Thank you very much for our needs, but it would be a different wild. It would be the wild that we had facilitated the emergence of by getting back into the fabric of life. It'd be a totally different wild. So the idea of carrying capacity 10,000 years ago with hunter gatherers in England, it's nothing to do with it. I'm talking about carrying capacity of, of the fabric of life to support and nurture life. And that, to me, is without question. Of course, the fabric of life. But, but while we're in there undermining the fabric of life, the, the argument's self-defeating because, you know, clearly, yes. we're, we're wrecking the soil anyway. So we can't carry on doing that. No. <laughs> so you tell me, you know. Yeah. How are you going to feed 9 billion? You tell me how you're going to feed 9 billion because you won't have any soil to do it with. And, and whatever you say about hydroponics, like, um, see, this is why I don't mind you rambling because when I get going, I ramble. Um, <laughs> my turn. <laughs> I don't mind a bit. So um, I've, I've had a friend in, in Australia try to feed his, his um, crickets that he was breeding in the, in the attic because he's trying to get people to eat crickets in his restaurant. He threw the scraps to them and I ate the scraps when he throwed through hydroponically grown scraps to those crickets they wouldn't eat it they didn't recognize it as food now if a cricket knows that that's not food I don't want to eat it either there's something <laughs> there's something not happening with that which you know that's not the answer so yeah no it's uh, I, I, th- I think you're, you're right we need to um, I'm really happy with this idea of, uh, of reintegration you know, it's we are we have become more separated. You know, we are a product of that. I have to take a certain amount of responsibility for the fact that you know I consume in 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 the way we do in in this uh, in, in this world. Um, but I love this I love this idea of reintegrating. You know, uh, bringing back a bit more of the good stuff. Um, you know, that uh, will that improves your lives, enrich enriches your lives. Um, you know, maybe we need to be a bit more tribal, not in, not in the, the a bad sense, you know, but in a good sense. You know, maybe we we do need to sort of not look in after our them sense. You mean you, our neighbours a bit more, you know? So you know, I'm I, I, I'm sort of really quite happy with that, and I think the the current uh, situation is, you know, people are sort of are thinking more about their neighbours, and you know, you know, are, are you know, are you okay? Are you, have you got enough food? interestingly enough you know um and i think that you know this uh, you're right this conduit has basically uh, 
sort of you know where we're fed information and and, and goods and, and whatnot uh, uh, separates us even further. Um, and I, a situation like uh, the virus is, um, I think, reigniting in people this sense of community. You know, who is who are my tribe? Yeah. You know, who, who, who you know who, who are are the members of my tribe? Well, actually, we're all in the poo together, to be honest. So it needs to be extended. I mean, look at all the wonderful things that people are doing. You know, they're really making a massive effort to look after people. Um, you know, all those uh, uh, medical people that are going back to the NHS. You know, it's you know they're doing a wonderful thing, and and maybe we need to sort of get all. Maybe this is the opportunity to get away from being separate. Um, back to that, you know, uh, some sort of not. Maybe you're right. Maybe not back to anything, but going forward, it's going yeah. forward. We need to bring forward with us what was good, you know, and not kick it into touch because it was old, but it was, it's good, you know, having that connection with uh, your neighbours, having that connection with the land. These are good things, you know, and, um, you know, it's easy to picture as it, we've lost it, but I, I actually really like the way you're saying, actually, this is modern. This is going to be new. This is going to be our, uh, maybe what our future should sort of look like. Uh, it's interesting. I had a conversation with some, someone the other day and they were, they were sort of saying, oh, we never make anything in this country anymore. You know, we, we buy too much, too much from abroad. We've got to make it here. Um, but I, you know, people don't remember the damage the industrial revolution caused, you know, it's, uh, um, it, you, England, the UK, wouldn't have been a great place to live during that period unless you were incredibly wealthy and probably not very good then either because of the air quality and, you know, um, and all the coal that was being burned. Um, so I don't necessarily, you know, you know, I, I, I like history. Do you know what I mean? And I, but I don't necessarily, you know, when you look back, sometimes you sort of can see actually it's pretty, pretty flipping miserable um, for a lot of people. And, you know, we've got it pretty good by comparison today but i i do feel we need to reintegrate things that are lost um and you know i think that uh, you know a bit of community uh, a bit of bit of uh, working out who your tribe is you know and uh, a bit of that is actually is going to be no bad thing and i love this idea that uh, along with that you know wild food foraging is is really is part of that um I love that idea. And and the thing is we've got we've all got wild foods in our surroundings and 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 um it's a great place point to meet around. I mean sadly we can't all go out foraging you know all all us foragers I'm sure we wish we wish we could go out now and knock on all the neighbors doors say yeah. god you know we're all stuck at home let's go foraging we'll teach you yeah. about the but we can't do it. No. We've got to, we've got to isolate and keep apart so yeah I mean I'm trying to think about how I can do that by just putting 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 videos out and and maybe put little like around the village, pointing at things, saying, "You know, this is this is actually good to eat. You can do this with it, and whatnot." But like, ultimately, um, these are points that where we could meet around, you know, in in the surroundings that we're in. And and the thing is, they are common resources. I've I've had to do a lot of research into the law, you know. And somebody can try and contradict me if they like, but I I I think I've got the 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 the, the thing clear regarding the property status of wild plants. Um, you know, if they really are wild and no one's planted them, they don't belong to anyone. Can't dig them up without landowner's permission, but I think that's a good thing because that means the landowner is a steward. 
So they've got the right to say, can you do that? But it still doesn't mean it belongs to them. It means they're a steward. I love that, you know, like, cause the, you know, the lands is obviously we've got this terrible thing with land ownership. You know, I don't believe in land ownership, but they, even if it did, you know, I think, well, at least it should be fair, but, and it's not fair. It's like the power in the hands of too many people, but like the <laughs> don't belong to anyone. Yeah. They bloody don't. So, you know, it doesn't matter whose land it is. These are common resources. And I'm not saying we should be rude to the people that own the land either. It's only polite to, to respect you're walking across someone's land, but let's That's be clear. They're not your plants, you know, and, and therefore we're in a situation where with respect to, to, to landowners so as not to be rude and obnoxious, that's a given, yeah. But but then everybody else that lives in that area, once we switched onto this, we need to get together and decide what are we gonna do with our common resources. I love that. <laughs> that's brilliant. It it kind of reminds me of um uh, there was a, a chap one uh, September time, September October. He was out um, uh, picking mushrooms in 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 uh, in uh, in the field next door, and I didn't actually. I know it was after. He was after magic mushrooms. Right. Um, yeah. I didn't have the heart to tell him there weren't any there, and I'd know not because I was interested. You know, if I see magic mushrooms when I'm out foraging for edible mushrooms, you know, you go, oh, there's a magic mushroom, you know, whatever. Um, but he was out there for ages, you know, a- adopting that that hunched over position. And I just didn't have the heart to sort of say, did you ask the land? Oh, do you know what? It doesn't even matter. There's none there anyway. I know there isn't. So yeah. just crack on. An hour later, he wasn't, he wasn't there anymore. But um, it's a very interesting thing that you, you say. Yeah, because, but because it's wild, therefore it isn't anyone's property. So by default, it's available to everyone it's um and i think you're right digging up stuff um well yeah under the 1981 wildlife and countryside act it's illegal to uproot and destroy any wild plant so i trot that out when i'm doing you know doing 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 my forays um but uh and that's a good thing yeah because it stays there and it'll come back the following year and you can visit it again and you can take leaves or flowers or this this that and the other uh but you're not destroying the actual plant I love that. But again, that's a, that's a, that's a stewardship type sort of thing. As you were mentioning, you know, you know that if you dig it up, it's going to die. So there's no point in taking the bulbs of, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, uh, tubers of wild garlic. No point in taking that when you've got the leaves, the, 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 the stalk, the, yeah. the flowers and those incredible atomic bombs of flavor, the seed pods, you know, yeah. chuck a few around, you know, sort of spread the love. So it's, it's um, yeah, no, I, 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 I love all of this. You know, I think, you know, what, uh, what you're saying there is very interesting. And uh, the bit of the law that I've read in relation to all this myself, it's actually quite a grey area. There's no clear black and white, you know, this is this. And maybe that's a good thing because that's where uh, it's almost by what it doesn't say rather than what it does say allows us to continue to forage and treat things as common. Well, this came up a few weeks ago, um, one of the conversations we had, um, and I think think you're right. It is good that it's a grey area in terms of the legislation, or at least there's nothing nothing solid that can be used to stop people from from foraging, because it, it, it has to go, at least for things to be fair and good, it has to go to this kind of consensus building in, in a local area. You know, if, if we, if we get to the point where enough people know and it is acknowledged as common resources, 
you know, we don't need legislation then. You've just no. got your neighbors and people going, oh, come on, don't be a dick. Like, you know, <laughs> do that. Yeah. Or, or people coming together and say, well, actually, I've noticed if we do this, it flourishes and we have far more than we had before, you know, whatever. Um, Very much so. Very much so. I mean, it's, you know, to be able to go foraging and to collect wild food is a basic human right. I don't know if it's, you know, um, if it's actually, uh, you know, that is actually a thing. But in my heart, I know that, you know, foraging and picking wild food is a fundamental human right. And to have that taken away, I think we would be so much poorer. Um, it would be a bloody disaster. It really would. So I think that more people you can get into the into foraging and, and, and collecting wild food, the better. It's got to be better. It's got to be a good thing. Well, I mean, I think it's all part of the, the, the same sort of thing. So I'm, I'm really kind of almost obsessed at the moment with it, with the idea of home and the homestead. You know, I have been for yeah. a while and, and I could tell you how it started. Well, in a sense, like just feeling so gutted about the, uh, the sort of the negative stuff, like the popular vote for Brexit and the popular vote for, for, um, for, uh, Boris Johnson's bunch of clowns you know recently you just you just think my goodness we had we had an opportunity to have a left-wing government that would have would have but these were good people whatever you think i mean i'm a great defender of, of, of corbyn just because i think he's a good man i'm sorry but what more do you want you know i know we need other skill sets but like goodness why not vote for a good man you know we, we can work out like how to get the practicalities because he was commissioning like a great study into land policy and that was george monbiot was involved in they were really working on their economic policy, like with radical think tanks, you know, really smart people from around the world, how to do things fairer. You know, they had policy, unlike these bloody clowns. They really did have policy. And and so, you know, the, the feeling that we had this opportunity that, that was lost, that people chose that instead of this. And but where it took me, Adrian, was 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 just like, OK, we've just got to work within our own home that like that's yes. where we've got the opportunity if we want more fairness we want more groundedness more integration more ecology more you know i can't fix that my vote no. didn't work my anything i'm saying to influence the popular mindset didn't work we can all say the same we feel utterly impotent you know but i can influence how much at home i'm being because to me all of this stuff that we're talking about is about being at home, you know. We're either at home on the land, home in the community, and something we haven't really touched on, but, but like being in home in your own body. Yeah, yeah. That's where it all comes out from. I'm, my body has evolved to integrate with you. My body has evolved to integrate with the land. So if I'm not myself embodied, none of that stuff works. So that's the bit we didn't mention, but very important. But it's all about being at home. It's, this is where I've ended up thinking. So I think it's so funny that, that, that the coronavirus has sent everybody home. <laughs> and stay home. Be in the place you live with yeah, the people yeah. you live with and don't go anywhere else. It's, it's amazing. I mean, the planes aren't going overhead. The, the road, there's no road noise. And I'm sort of thinking, wow, you know, let's, let's forego those foreign holidays. Let's get the planes out of the sky. I, I'll do that. I'm happy. I, 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 I'd do that. Um, let's, let's get people working from home. Let's cut down on the commuting. I mean, they're, well, they're reporting 50% less pollution in, in, in some of these built up areas. You know, there's a benefit for health there. 
Um, and, you know, by, by default, obviously, uh, plants that live near, um, yeah. the roadsides. And, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I've worked from home for, for many years. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I, I, my business, I work with my wife. And, uh, so we've got that sort of working relationship. Um, and it's not difficult for us. I should imagine some people are finding it quite challenging, uh, because they're used to disappearing off. But do you know what? Actually, I'm, I'm looking around. I'm listening to, to the birds, which you can hear now because the cars have disappeared. Do you know what I mean? And I'm thinking, I'm really, I'm, you know, it's preaching to the converted, but I'm really buying this. I'm buying this stay at home, uh, thing. Um, and I think we, we could easily meet our climate change targets if we just didn't rush around so bloody much and spank lots of fuel doing it. You know, it, we've got computers, we've got this technology. Okay. That relies on electricity. I, I, I get that, but we can communicate. We are communicating now. Um, and you know, we've got a connection and I think that, you know, there's less and less excuses for traveling en masse. Less and less excuses for it. Um, and I, I think that maybe this is, a, I've said it already, an opportunity, hopefully, yeah. you know, to, um, for people to sort of say, hold on a minute, I can be in this place, um, in, in this, in this time, in this area. Maybe one of the struggles is that people can't be in themselves. They don't know who they are. They they only judge themselves or think they are um, benchmark themselves against what is out out there, you know what they want to acquire, um, where they want to be in so many years time with their career, um, you know in of themselves that's not evil, you know it's not bad, um, but I think if you're stuck in a a place, yeah. all of a sudden you have to start dealing with yourself, yeah you have to start thinking about who you are, uh, what you are, and how you relate to your family, your friends, and your immediate environment. You're right, it's a, it's a shame I can't go down to the village, grab everyone, and take them out and go, look, guys, this is what you could be, you know, this is what you could be getting into, you know, you're missing this. Well, having said that, there's there's far more opportunity to, to, to um, communicate with people I mean, this is, this is the thing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a bit of a, um, perhaps I don't hate technology quite as much as I thought I did moment just now because I'm seeing, so, I mean, just to recap on what I said before, my, you know, my real critique of technology is the fact that it severs these links, you know, yeah. so many links that we could, should, and did have, you know, and technology goes around snipping the lots and you don't need those, just add this one, you know, yeah. but, the fact is, as you say, here you and I are talking, and we've never met, and we've, we've made this connection through email and so on, and we're having this, this lovely chat, which is life-enhancing, and we'll have repercussions. Other people can listen in on this chat that may well find it life-enhancing too. And then in our little pockets where we are, our little homes, people are starting all these – I mean, I don't have internet on my phone, so I can't do it, but like, there's all these WhatsApp groups locally. Yeah. You know, so potentially using these kind of vehicles of WhatsApp and, and, and even email, I am part of a couple of local email groups. You know, we could be teaching our neighbors to forage like that, you know. And the fact is, a few years back, we didn't have those things. So, you, you know, 
good old technology, it turns out. <laughs> it can, can be used for good, yeah. Or can be used to create these linkages. It's my main bee in my bonnet is like, are we yeah. having more connections or fewer connections? Um, you know, but 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 those those vehicles mean that we could actually, uh, instead of going out and saying, hey, everybody come out foraging, we could at least post pictures and say, look, you do have a nettle in your garden. Let me remind you what it looks like. Yes. And here's all the soup I made. Here's the recipe. You could do that and, and then get everybody to chat about what they did. It. Say, anybody make the nettle soup then? So uh, I'm sitting there trying to think of, of, of ways to encourage that, that kind of uh, behavior, not just the kind of get them to make the soup, but perhaps we as foragers could help each other to think about ways to do that uh, and, and start a little uh, wild food revolution in our neighborhood while everyone's stuck at home. I love the idea of that. I mean, there, isn't there the next door um, uh, uh, website, isn't there? Is it, um... I'm on. I think I'm on next door at Petham, which is actually, I'm not in Petham, but it's the next village to me. It's the nearest one I've got. Yeah, maybe they could do something with, with, with that because a lot of people are, uh, you know, are sort of in the next door thing. Um, yeah. uh, I'm thinking that actually that's, uh, that might be the best way to get to most people uh, in the area. And in the day, uh, yeah, and this is a, a gag I sort of use um, with the groups. You know, you, everyone's ready to sort of basically cut down their nettles when you could just eat them. Um, and the more you, you crop it, the earlier, it keeps it all at bay uh, and it keeps it fresh and it keeps it nice. And, you know, just just get out there. And it's I, I always describe it as the super wild food. Nettles are a super wild food. As, as you know, they've got everything in them. Um, and it is unbelievably good for you. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's a I'm great idea. This. Do, you want, do you want to rattle off the everything, if you know it better than me? Because I, I look at these things and forget it immediately. But I know, I know, they, <laughs> they're, well, I know they're very good for protein and iron. That's it, yeah. It's, it's one of the few plants that has is, got protein in it, which yeah. I, I, it always blows my mind. I love that. Um, so it's, I believe it's got uh, more protein by dry weight than pretty much any other plant. Um, pack full of iron, more iron than spinach. Um, and this is the bit where I, I, I usually forget and then sort of blow through all the vitamins. It's got all the vitamins. That's just the easiest thing to say. Lots of yep. vitamin A and B and probably the rest as well. You get the picture. And obviously the antihistamines and uh, uh, and the rest of it. But for me, it's that, that idea that it has protein. Yeah. And when you eat protein in, in any of its form, the body recognizes that you've you've got protein and it goes, my God, that is food. That yeah. is proper food right there. And I think that nettle has, has got that in, in abundance. You know, it's got that ability when you eat it as a, as a soup. Okay. You probably put potatoes in your soup and a bit of onion and you've made it nice. You've made it, um, you know, really, a really nice dish and you've made it flavorsome. Um, but when you, I think your body is a recognize your body recognizes that you've got, got some proper food there. Um, and it can do something with it and it's substantial and it's incredibly uh, good for you. Interestingly, it also has some, um, uh, you know, nitrogen and phosphate in it that naturally occurring. It draws it out of the, uh, out of the soil. So it's rich in that. So I believe that's good for your um, nervous system um, right. as well as other sort of uh, bits and bobs. And I just think, oh my God, you know, there's not many plants that you can point to that grow so commonly, so abundant so easy to identify everyone knows what it is everyone avoids it and it's just it is another gift it is an absolute gift it is, it is 
the ultimate super wild food. It really is. And just thinking about it now is making me want to go and eat some <laughs> because, you know, it really is, you know. What's your favourite nettle thing to cook? Um, oh, crikey. Probably would be the soup. I'm such a soup head. Yeah. All year round, it, it's got to be the soup, I'm afraid. I mean, I've tried it in many different things. I've tried cooking it into lasagna. Um, I've tried, you know, doing all, all, all that sort of stuff with it. Um, but it's the soup. And obviously at this time of year with the wild garlic, the combo. It, wild garlic and nettle soup. Oh, my God. It's just fantastic. It, the, the two really complement each other. And I think it's that sort of garlicky, oniony note that the uh, wild garlic gives you is, yeah. is perfect with... Um, with uh with nettles it's just such a great you know they're, they're made for each other absolutely so everything any opportunity i have to to do something with a soup it's it's there it's it's done but uh yeah no nettles are uh are absolutely fantastic uh as far as i'm concerned you can keep them going virtually all year round if you're, you live in a mild climate area you know they you know they can you know i've picked nettles in winter you know it's they've been pretty poor but you know they're still around um so yeah no they're absolutely fantastic and it's the first portal call really for for foraging and, and teaching this stuff i mean i'm i'm you know I, i've run sort of forays but also um you know because i run an outdoor activity company uh as well um so we do accommodation and outdoor activities and there's always a foraging element to the outdoor activities that I, I run. So I might do an archery session, for example, but I'm yeah. sure as hell going to make them eat some sorrel or, do you know what I mean? Or something that I've, I've found uh, uh, along the way. And um, a lot of the groups I, I, we've had over the years include, um, I do corporate groups in the week, but over the weekends it's usually stag and hen parties, which is, yeah, yeah which is can be a source of amusement and frustration at the same time but you know what's great about this miles is you're you're then preaching to the unconverted exactly it's an outreach. yeah 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 this is a great thing you know as far as i'm concerned because you're you're giving allowing access to things that people would never normally consider so one of the activities that i run uh is is, is our signature activity it's called go wild um and it includes wild food foraging a bush tucker trial and fire lighting without matches and, and a bit of archery. And so they get all those four elements within that one activity. And the amount of, you know, it, people love the archery, it's great fun, but, and they love the fire lighting because that's something that, you know, they have to do in pairs and want to help each other out. Um, but it's the, the wild food, and I, we call it bush tucker trial, but really it's, it's just eating the bits that you've collected, you know. And, uh, but I, I always, oh, I always forget to give them, the wild garlic at the end and if you give it to them at the beginning when you're doing a tasting of different plants they can't taste anything else after that <laughs> you know literally they've had their 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 taste buds blown sideways and it's just it's you know it's just impossible so everything tastes of garlic from that point so a good tip is to start with um something that isn't so strong um but uh yeah usually sorrel gets a good reaction wild garlic gets a great reaction and you do the thing where you roll up the nettles in your in your finger yeah. so that they can at least try a bit and then i sort of say to them oh, what garden plant do you think well, you know what garden vegetable do you think that that nettle tastes like and some people get it straight away you know they sort of say oh you know peas or beans you know string beans you know long beans you know sort of french beans uh which is what i 
think that is, is the closest sort of flavour. But other people just, no, nah, I've got grass. That's all I've got. I've just got grass. Um, How much grass do you eat that you're such an expert? On what- <laughs> exactly. Well, I just don't think they eat that many green vegetables from the garden. Do you know what I mean? That's They've got no, no, no reference point. You know, they're sort of eating this bit of nettle. Once, once it's been sort of rolled up and, you know, all the juice is coming out. So you, the whole idea is you're breaking the stinging hairs, or, you know, so that you can put it in and eat it without um, uh, uh, you know, stinging your mouth. And uh, they, they just, they've got no frame of reference. They've got nothing to compare it to because they probably don't eat French beans or runner beans, you know, so they, they don't know what the flavour is. They don't, don't know what they're tasting. Yeah. Put it in a soup and all of a sudden you make it accessible, Um to them so one of the things we, we we can offer is like a a cook up so what we do is we get a fire going get the pots and pans out get a brew on uh and then cook up the things that we've we found so um again it sort of brings in elements of the bushcraft and and you know cat craft and things like that but you're making it fun you're making it available to um so it's not just a sort of standard foray if you like it's uh, um with people that have signed up because they genuinely want to know um this is this is yeah really preaching to the converted and and it's uh yeah it's interesting to see sometimes how the the, the lights you know the bulb comes on the light switches flick the bulb comes light bulb comes on and people are like wow i never knew that i never knew that there was you know such a value in in something as crazy as the humble nestle well one of the things i like doing with with uh with with kids, right? I, I sort of do it with adults a little bit, just but I always do it through the the, the vehicle of telling them this is what I say to kids. So that's <laughs> to put on the spot, but I I, I say to kids um, that that um, when you forage, you're becoming a normal organism because uh, all other organisms, like all the squir- animals, well, I say animals, not organisms. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, every other animal just goes around foraging what it can in its place. You know, it doesn't hurt never heard of this weird thing we do called shopping and and all of that um so so i say you know you kids are just a bunch of weirdos you know you get all your food from somewhere else well that's weird that's really (laughs) weird (laughs) so i'll tell you what i'm gonna help you out here yeah i'm gonna help you just be a little bit more normal you know so i get them to eat one plant i say is anybody feeling normal yet (laughs) (laughs) that's great yeah i just love the idea that somebody somebody that's been dragged along to one of your hen or stag do's you know just because their their mate who's getting married thought exactly. it would be a good idea to do foraging and they're like you what we're gonna do what yeah but yeah. uh but they get exposure to to, to normality i'd like that well it's, it's funny because that's exactly what happens there's always one or two at the back that effing hate it do you know what i mean because they they're coming along because uh they think they have to and then by and large by the end of it they're actually do you know what that was not any interesting but that was something I never thought I was going to do in a million years. And it is one small step. It's one little thing, you know, and if that one little thing leads to another and another and so on, eventually down the line, they might make different choices at the supermarket. They might make uh, different choices at the ballot box. Who knows? Do you know what I mean? But it, I'm not saying that, it, 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 you know, it, that with a lot of other stuff can make a lot, a lot of changes to people's lives. And I think that there's no better way than... If you can get someone outside, if you just get them outside in the first instance and engage them somehow, whether it's through a few jokes, a good gag, you know, and uh, being approachable about it, you know, and 
being friendly about it and communicating it in such a way that they want they want to know because um, you know you're not some stern school sort of master uh, 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 about what you're what you're communicating. You know, if you make it available to them in a, in a fun and engaging way, then then I can't, it's only a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's all friendly as far as I'm concerned. You, you know, you, you you said there about communicating it in a friendly way, and and I think that that's what that's what foraging does communicate, or or maybe put it in another way, foraging is tuning in to something that has been loud and clear communicated, which is that the landscape is really friendly. It's yes. kind of just, it's just giving you food all the time. Yeah. It's remarkable, isn't it? And that, <laughs> I mean, it's it's. And it's, it's very interesting when um, you look at a lot of uh, uh, sort of uh, tribal peoples, they often describe their their habitat that they're in, their, their surrounding as their friend um, uh, and the, the landscape, the land provides and and sort of almost talking about it as as if it's a family member or do you know what I mean? A, a, a friend or something. I don't, and I just find that very interesting that, you know, if you know what you're looking for. If you've got that knowledge in, inside, then there is less fear out there. So you can go across a landscape, and you know you can you, you know what not to uh, ingest, and you know you know you know what is good to eat. And I, wow, I just think it's a great thing. It's a great thing. But then again, there's all these stories of of, of uh, white males exploring different parts of the world. You know, and dying and starving, and you know, because they're trying to, you know, I'm hard, me, you know, I can, or, <laughs> I can, you know, and 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 time and again, it's like in, indigenous people really did try to say, look, you know, you can eat that, <laughs> and if you did it like this, you'd you'd probably, you know, <sighs> the most successful, yeah, you're right, you're dead right. The most successful explorers are the ones that relied completely on indigenous people to to guide them and teach them and and learn from um so the one proved in the end was it's not i'm hard me it's like a help yeah <laughs> we're, we're going, help me. Help. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean okay they might have been going off to find you know gold and fur and whatever it is they were they were looking for but you know um the ones that died were the ones that took so much stuff with them that they were weighed down and, and made poor decisions and, and, and the rest of it. And the ones that were really successful, the explorers that uh, came back with the right information or learned something completely new, were the ones that adopted more of, uh, you know, um, a native people's approach to these things. And, uh, yeah, they survived because they had to eat what, what they, they ate. I mean, I've been, I've been lucky enough to go to several different countries and try different wild foods. Um, and when someone offers me something... Um, I'm like, yeah, give it to me. I'll try it. I'll give it a go. Um, eating sort of these little larvae under the bark of of pine trees in the in the boreal forest in 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 Sweden. You know, I've never tried these damn things before, but I'm gonna give it give it a go. And do you know what? They didn't taste too bad at all. Um, not too wriggly, you know. But I think you, when you're in a, a situation where you're in a different country, you've got to rely on other people. You've got to, you know, you can't, you know, you can't. You know, unless you go there and live there for an extended period and start absorbing that knowledge, um, you know, and the experience of that, you're, 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 you've got to rely on other people. You need that. It's all coming, feeding back into the same kind of themes, isn't it? Yeah, because now maybe we'll 
we'll start doing that. Yeah, well, I think I think you're right. Getting getting it, um, you know, in, into where we are now, our local area, um, is uh, starting with your neighbours and uh, and your friends in in your local area. I think, yeah, I think that's a that's a grand idea. Yeah, I'm starting to feel hungry. I think I'm going to go and get something to eat. Yeah, I reckon that. Call that lunch. <laughs> it's been fantastic speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. Real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's Worldwide Podcast. And I just want to end with some thoughts that I touched on in the beginning about the networks and how the networks are being strengthened. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to bear witness to to what's happening and um, just just uh, encourage that kind of positive thread in 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 what's happening the development of of these networks and and just encourage you on a on a particular note to uh check out our foraging for kids thing which which i'm hoping is going to develop into a website actually but in the meantime if we can get loads and loads of people on there um not just like people posting material that know about foraging if you want to learn about foraging and you've got kids that's it's a great place to go and 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 be fed you know because we're trying to feed people with with that knowledge and and just capture the space that people get into with their kids there's some lovely videos there of people foraging with kids and cooking um we just want to we want you to catch this the space really as much as the the information of which there is um there is plenty but also you know if you've got friends this is a great way to reach out people people stuck at home right now with kids wanting something to do as long as you've got some kind of green space near you there's probably going to be something there that that will will provide some starting points there's even people posting games for kids on there i've done a, a, a fairly ridiculous um one with me pretending to be a pirate and talking about scurvy grass and uh, yeah we're just trying to get get that going like let's let's feed the network of kids getting uh, consolidated with landscapes through uh through wild foods yeah and if you haven't done it already also check out local food networks there's a thing called the um open food network that's got hubs all over the uk uh, springing up it does seem to be um a wonderful thing in kent we've got one in ashford and and um folkestone and uh, also in terms of networks we would really love to hear from anyone that's listening and and wants to wants to just get in touch and uh, also we'd love to you to, to to use your networks to to spread the word if if uh the, uh, the Worldwide Podcast is in any way life-enhancing, encouraging, or inspiring, or interesting, or occasionally funny, anything like that. If, if it's if it's good to you, it might be good to other people, so please do spread the word on that front. Okay, well, that's it for now, and uh, thanks again for listening to this week's Worldwide Podcast. Podcast.